Welcome to the Success in South Carolina podcast, where we will be hearing the untold stories of success from people in our community. These successful neighbors of ours will share their real-life philosophies and solutions for success to inspire us, educate us, and help us find peace, joy, and love, along with a purpose, a mission, and a vision for our lives. And I'm your host, Jonathan Peoples. Our guest today lives in Greenville, South Carolina. He's a growth-focused entrepreneur, an investor, a coach, a speaker, and a fractional executive. He got his start in business mowing lawns with a push mower while he was a teenager. Now he owns several successful businesses, helps guide and lead many others, and stars in my second favorite podcast. I'm excited to hear from our guest and share his wisdom with our listeners. Welcome to the show, my new friend, Tim Joyner. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. My pleasure. My pleasure. Now, you came to the Upstate for college, Tim. I did. What made you stick? I did. Well, I I came with no thought of sticking, actually. Uh, Never crossed my mind, but I found out that Greenville was a pretty good place to live. And before I knew it, I had business ventures, I had clients, I had a good church, I had friends, and just decided that there was no good reason to leave. And, you know, close to, I don't know what, almost 20 years later, here I am still in Greenville. Where are you from originally? I'm from the Midwest. I was uh, kind of the cornfields of Illinois, west of Chicago, 100 miles. Do you feel like it's just anything was better than that, or do you feel like you really have grown to, to love Greenville? Well, because you're still here after many years, too. So in retrospect, I mean, maybe anything is better than that. Like, it's definitely, a di- compared to Greenville, it's dying. There's not much a- economic life there. Yeah. Um, but I liked it growing up. Like, that was all I knew, and that was friends and family and home for me. And so it wasn't like I was trying to get away or trying to escape. Yeah. Um, but... But now with the, you know, the, the 2020 hindsight that I have, yeah, Greenville is a lot better place to grow a business than, than the cornfields of Illinois for sure. Right, right. What do you think are some of the things that makes Greenville so great to, uh, to grow your business? I think, uh, boy, Greenville has a lot to offer. I think we've been the beneficiaries of good leadership for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, in, in government, in business, um, community leaders, like we have really been the beneficiaries of some really great people that have had the vision and the tenacity, um, the hard work, the political connections, all of that to really make, but I mean, we have good weather, we have good natural resources, we've got the beautiful Falls Park right downtown Greenville, and there's a lot going for Greenville, and and a lot of good education, right, there are multiple schools that are in and around Greenville, so it's got all the raw ingredients for a great place to live and work and grow business. Right. And if you're talking about business too, we've also got the the inland port now. We've got, right. we're, we're almost exactly halfway between Atlanta and Charlotte. Yep. And a great airport. I like lots yeah. of good things. Yeah. You, you can get where you need to go in 15, 20 minutes and it's not horrible traffic. Yeah. I just love Greenville. Yeah. There's, and there's so much food scene. There's so much, one of the best top 10 downtowns in America, right? Yeah, I talk to people. I mean, I travel a good bit, and I talk to people all over, and I'm frequently telling them about Greenville. And it used to be that nobody had heard of Greenville, and now they're like, "Oh yeah, I read an article about that or something." And I'm right. like, "Well, you need to come visit." Right, come visit. right, right. Well, listen, guys, you've got to check uh, Tim out on his social media. He's on all the platforms: Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, TikTok. I've I don't know that yet. I don't have yeah, right. figured that out now. I'm a publisher on TikTok. I'm not really a consumer, but I do publish okay. there. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of my favorite posts are your little nuggets, your little sales hacks, uh, sometimes the the little simple word change that are very powerful. Will you share some of those hacks with us real quick? Oh, man. Yeah, lots of hacks. I, I love learning things like that, but more than just learning, then I love to put them in practice and yeah. like test them out and make them part of me. And so I've got 
20 or 30 years of, of experimentation with those. But yeah, lots of little word changes that will make such a difference. I remember hearing Ramit Sethi a long time ago. I don't know if you've, he's a New York Times bestselling author. He's one of the early podcasters and, and sort of digital growth people. Um, but he would test out on airplanes. He'd, he would introduce himself as a writer. And then the next flight, he would introduce himself as, a, as an author. And he got wildly different reactions. It seemed a writer, an author, but a writer, everybody's a str- struggling writer, right? And people would be like, oh, yeah, that's nice. But when he would say he was an author, they're like, really, what have you written? And it was just a complete. And that was really caught my attention 15 or 20 years ago when I remember him saying that. And since then, I've tested all kinds of little things like that. But recently, I read a study about uh, the, the power of because. So this is actually an old study from. I forget if it was Harvard or MIT, one of these schools where they did a study back in the days of copy machines. There was a copier and there'd be a line of students always at this particular copy machine. And so they sent in somebody to to basically cut their way in line. Yeah. And in the control group, they would just say, excuse me, um, uh, may I use the copier? And it was astonishing. I don't have the stat in front of me, but it was like 60% of them were successful or something like that. I don't, it was, wow. it, and Just maybe people were nicer back in those days. I, don't, <laughs> I feel like now you'd get some glares and middle fingers and whatever. Yeah. But anyway, a lot of people would say yes. But then they went back and they said, uh, excuse me, may I use the copier because I have to make copies? That doesn't even make any sense. because Of, of course, because you have to make copies, right? right? But the introduction of the word because shot up the success rate to like 91%. Just simply putting that one word in there. Just, just saying because I have to make copies. Following that. And then they tried uh, something that was more sensible, like because I'm in a rush, and it made like one percent more different. You know, ninety-one to ninety-two percent or something like that. Yeah. So it's interesting how it's almost hypnotic the the word because. And I, I so I've been able to use things like that in negotiation, and you know, when you're trying to convince somebody to do something, hopefully using it for good and not for manipulative, self-serving purposes. Sure, but sure. One of the one of the studies that I referenced in a recent podcast was uh, Gong.io. Gong, really interesting organization. They analyze uh, all kinds of like hundreds or thousands of sales conversations, and they use artificial intelligence to analyze all of these phone calls and different interactions and proposals and stuff. And they they try to identify patterns, what works and what doesn't work, and what results in a higher sales price and so on. So they talked recently about the difference between approved price and list price. If I say the list price is X, Y, Z, then you know right away that that's a starting point for negotiation. Right. But if I say the approved price is X, Y, Z, you feel like, well, some uh, third party has approved this price and it can't be messed with. And right. actually, I've got a much better chance of defending that initial price if I call it an approved price instead of a list price. And I, there's all kinds of little things like that that I find interesting. We could probably fill the whole podcast with those, but words matter yeah. and little tiny tweaks can often make massive differences. Yeah. I've found that I can get into almost anywhere and it's crazy as long as I say I'm authorized. Yeah. <laughs> right. The person, the person working security or working the gate or working wherever I got into Wrigley's cub field, just walk straight in. The, hey, sorry, you can't, uh, don't worry. I'm authorized. And they just let you on through? Yeah, just right in. Yeah, interesting. Uh, either that or like bringing a clipboard or I, I saw, like if you can bring a ladder with you. you yeah, know, right, you, you can get, get in anywhere. anywhere. I've heard that, yeah. A ladder or a clipboard. Um, I, I've got a group of um, entrepreneurs that I meet with regularly called M3, and we uh, we meet for a mastermind once a month in in the metaverse, actually. It's kind of interesting. We all wear VR headsets and meet in this virtual conference room. It's, it's a so cool experience. So you guys experience. are keeping the metaverse alive then. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, us, and, uh, us and Zuckerberg, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah. So anyway, 
one of the things that they do in real life, we do in real life, is about once a quarter we'll have an event of some kind. And one of them is like a classic mastermind where we're in person. One of them is like an adrenaline network, adrenaline fueled networking event. And so back in February of this year, we went out to Las Vegas and we raced exotic supercars and we jumped rally trucks in the desert and we flew helicopters and shot machine guns out of them. And we did like dog fighting in the air with laser, like laser tag in the sky, but where we actually piloted our own planes, we had a, a real pilot in the back seat, and we were in the front and Anyway, one of the things that this group in the metaverse. Did, no, no, no. This was all real life. What? This was all real okay, life. okay. And this whole time, I'm imagining all this. No, in the no, no, no. That was all real life. But one of the things that they did was a uh, like a kidnapping escape simulation. And okay. so they went to an undisclosed location, and there was a team of people that do this professionally that were trying to basically kidnap them, and they had to evade capture. And so we learned all these skills, and then how to escape once you're captured. So how do you get out of handcuffs? How do you get out of duct taped hands and being fun. tied up and all this stuff is really phenomenal. But one of the takeaways from this was that if you ever need to, you know, get away from somebody wearing a construction vest or a hard hat or carrying a ladder, you can get into anywhere that other people can't get into. And so yeah. like they'd get into the, the, the underground maintenance tunnels under a shopping mall or whatever, just yeah. by carrying a ladder and nobody, nobody asks. So yeah. anyway, we're, we're uh, chasing rabbits now, but no, it's I love it. So these little tips, it's, I, I don't know if I'm kind of on the fence about the word hack. Yeah. Right. Some, sometimes I love it. Sometimes yeah. I hate it. Yeah. But at the same time, I love these just small little nuggets that uh, it may seem super simple. And once you think about them, but words really do matter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Words, mindsets, approaches. I mean, I think one of the one of the most valuable things that I ever learned in a sales situation was how to how to defend my price. I can remember with great clarity the first time I used this because I was really scared to use it. I, I had always competed on price up until this point. This was 15 or 20 years ago. And I was building websites and I had given a proposal to this customer, this prospective customer that I really wanted. It was a big customer. It was a big project for me. I really needed to get it. And I'd given him a price and he came back and called me up and said, you know, love the proposal, but our budget is only whatever it was, it was like $1,000 less than what I quoted him. Uh, can you do it for that? And I took a deep breath. I can visual, I know where I was. I was walking around in the parking lot outside my office, but I can remember it like it was yesterday. And I said, absolutely, Mr. Client, be happy to do it for that. What we have to do is go through the proposal and just identify which elements are least important to you so that we can trim that up to get it down to what your budget is. And then I was just quiet. Didn't say anything. And he said, uh, well, actually, we love everything just the way it is. I, there's not really anything I want to get it. So we'll, we'll go ahead and do it at your price. And I remember pumping my fist and, like it was in a video call. You yeah. know, he could, and I was so excited. Like I'd actually just created $1,000 of additional wealth out of thin air, I felt like. Because in the past, I would have just you know acquiesced and said, yeah, sure, right. we'll do it for your price. Uh, anyway, I've been able to experiment with those kinds of things again and again. But those little hacks, tips, tricks, whatever you want to call them can be really useful. And over a lifetime, if you keep collecting them and putting them to use, you, you, uh, you come out to some advantage. You get the adrenaline rush, but at the same time, you probably almost feel sick at your stomach because what you just did, but you, so you just got to hush. Yeah. But it, but it, the thing was, it wasn't like I was being unethical or I was all. like, I, I, what I was going to build was worth that. I was right. creating real value and he was just doing, I mean, he wasn't doing anything wrong either. He was just being a good fiduciary for his yeah. company, trying to get it at a better price. But I had, I felt this obligation to say yes, like to be nice to him, but I really had no obligation. Right. I had an obligation to feed my own family and to, right. you know, make a profit for my own company. 
and it it just took some practice and a mindset shift to be able to to defend my price like that and I've never looked back. Negotiation skills I feel like are one of the most important skills that every single person in this world should probably learn how to develop. Because like you said, you just created a thousand dollars profit in thin air. Yeah. A 10 second conversation or a 30 yeah. second conversation, thousand bucks. Yeah. You'll never get paid a thousand bucks for 30 yeah. seconds ever yeah. again. Yeah. Right. And My, yeah, exactly. I, I've had the privilege to work pretty closely with two different people that were trained by Harvard's negotiation school. They've got a great negotiation program and I've seen both of these guys negotiate really big deals. And, and I'll tell you, I've with one of them I've negotiated with and against yeah. and it's a whole lot more fun negotiating with them than against them yeah. right but but literally I remember one conversation with one of these guys where he went in and negotiated on my behalf a $20,000 he he made $20,000 out of thin air in a 30 minute meeting yeah that I did not expect to get I didn't think there was any way that we were going to get this and we literally walked out of that conference room with a $20,000 check that I didn't expect to get and 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 it it was, again it was fair it wasn't like i was trying to take advantage of these people but it was kind of a gray area where they had sort of taken advantage of me because i didn't have a good contract i right. did, this was a long time ago and i yeah. didn't set good expectations and they and and they really owed it to us but there was no way that we could have sued them and won right, right? I, they didn't have to pay it even right. though ethically they should have right and he went to bat for me and in a 30 minute meeting, he got a check for 20 grand that I would have never had any hope of getting. It was amazing. Anyway, that's another story for another day. Yeah. I love the book, uh, Never Split the Difference. Yeah. Have Chris you, Foss. What, what about, what other books do you feel like are great for people in that area? So that book is great. I actually was on a podcast with Chris Foss just uh, a month or so ago. Yeah. And his son um, is in a strategic coach 10X group with me. So I see his son once a quarter. Okay. And uh, anyway, Chris Foss, great guy, great book. If you haven't read it, you ought to. Other books about negotiation, that's a good question. I've read so many books about sales and about persuasion and about how people think. I think probably the ones that have been most beneficial to me haven't been about negotiation per se, but about ancillary, like like the psychology of how people make decisions. Yeah. So books like Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, and Dan, Daniel Kahneman, I think, is the author okay. of that one. One of the most interesting ones is Dan Ariely's book, predictably irrational. I don't know if you've read that one. No. He basically says that everybody is irrational, but they behave in predictably irrational ways. And so okay. if you can predict how they're going to behave irrationally, you know, you can get a lot more, a lot more done and, and yeah. reach more favorable outcomes. But he talks about how people, so interesting story from that book. He sent out grad students. I think it was on Stanford's campus, if I remember right. He sent out grad students to sell subscriptions to The Economist magazine. And back then you could buy, I guess you still can get The Economist three different ways. You can buy just the print edition, you can buy just the digital edition, or you can buy print and digital together, right? And so the first group went out with a little flyer that had all three options. Number one was digital, and don't quote me on the numbers, but let's say that it was 59 bucks for the digital. Number two was uh, just print, and print was, you know, maybe $79. So 59 for the digital, 79 for the print, or you could get print and digital together for $79. In other words, no extra cost. You could choose option three and get both of them together, right? Hmm. So 30% of the respondents in this first group, 30% of them chose the cheap option, the digital only. 70% yeah. of them chose the expensive option that got both, 
Nobody chose the middle option, which was just the print edition for 79 bucks because same price, you get print and digital, right? right. But, but the point is that 70% chose the expensive option. They got print and digital. Nobody chose the middle option. So now we send out a second group of grads, same grad students, but, but a second form. Mm-hmm. And instead of offering three options, we only have two. We have the first one, digital only, which yeah. is 59 bucks. We have digital and print for 79 bucks. Right. These are the only options that people picked in the first group. So it seemingly the, the middle one had no function. We get rid of it. It shouldn't change anything, right? Except that it does. It's an exact flip. Now, 70% choose the cheap option. Right. 30% choose the expensive option. Yeah. Exact same options. The only difference is there was a missing anchor in the middle that sort of established value that said, hey, this print edition is really worth a lot. Mm-hmm. And 79 plus 59, but I can still get it for 79 and so that's one way that he just won out of dozens and dozens of stories in this book, like how people behave irrationally. It's irrational to to the, right. the option that nobody's going to choose. It shouldn't influence you, but it does. Yeah. And so if you're in sales, you think about things like anchoring and how do you pre- and which one do you present first and right. all those kinds of things all make a difference. So anyway, yeah. I think you ask about negotiation books, books like that that have given me kind of the raw ingredients. Now right. I can mix and match and develop my sales strategy based on all these little things that I know about psychology. I feel like we're going to jump into a lot of different topics. Before we do that, I want to lay some framework, lay some foundation. How does Tim Joyner define success? Hmm. How do I define success? Uh, interesting question. So I don't know that I have a really well-defined, like neat little package of how I define success, but I can tell you that it absolutely must involve growth. So for me, you know, somebody asked one time if I was satisfied with my success or if I was content. And I said, absolutely. I'm, I'm incredibly satisfied with where I am today. And if I'm still here tomorrow, I won't be satisfied. Right. Right. So I'm always hungry to get better. Yeah. And yet I'm thankful for where I am. Right. So I try to hold both of those in tension. Um, So success for me involves continuous growth, which means not just more money, but but more impact, more influence, better relationships, a better work life balance. Like I always want my tomorrow to be better than my yesterday. And for me, as long as I'm getting better, that's probably success. I think one of the dangers of some arbitrary success marker like well i'll be successful when i have 10 million dollars in the bank or i'll be successful when i'm employing 100 people or i'll whatever is that then you reach it and you're like well what now right that's why lots and lots of business owners a crazy high statistic um, within two years of selling their business or retiring a whole bunch of them are dead because like they've worked they've always had something to live for something to work for some bigger tomorrow that they were dreaming about and after they sell, they're like, well, now what? What Isn't do I that do with myself? that a principle where there is no vision? The people perish. perish. That's right. Absolutely. So anyway, I don't like to define like a, some sort of a threshold where that's success. But I think for me, success has to be improving in all areas of my life. So I want to be healthy. Um, I want to have good relationships. I want to have a good walk with God. I want to have more money tomorrow than I did yesterday, more influence, more freedom, like there are lots of elements, but as long as I'm getting better, I'm pretty happy. So then a follow-up question. I feel like that the journey to success has its peaks and its valleys. How do you still feel successful when you're on the downside of that 
curve. Yeah. Right. Because if it's always about growth, but right now I'm not growing. I'm I'm less healthy today than I was yesterday. Yeah, yeah. But I'm still I've still got this hunger in me. And I'm still trying. But sometimes it's not even up to you. Sometimes yeah. you make a bad business deal or whatever it might be, and your finances are worse today than they were yesterday. Yeah. So Dan Sullivan says, always be on the winning team or the learning team. And I love that quote. I say it a little different way. I say failure isn't failure unless you fail to learn from it. Mm. And, and that's not just like a mental gymnastics, you know, to make myself feel better. I legitimately believe that, that even if I screwed up royally, as long as I learned something from it, I said, okay, I know something that I didn't know before. I know how to not to do that again, or I know what's going to work better next time. Then that's a win. And it may not be the win I was looking for, the win that I wanted, but even if I, you know, my weight went in the wrong direction or my running time went in the wrong way, or I, you know, screwed up and made a mistake in that speech, or we lost money last quarter or whatever, as long as I can say, okay, I know something now that I didn't know before, that can still be progress for me. And I know that that's going to be the raw material, the fuel for even greater success next quarter. So I don't let that set me back too much. Yeah. I feel like so many people nowadays fear failure. Yeah. And in schools, we're taught that an F is bad. That's right. If you fail, it is That's right. bad. Yeah. Uh, whereas true success, it's almost the opposite. You have yeah. to embrace failure because it's going to be part of the journey. Yeah. Yeah. You have to try new things. And the problem with that mindset of where you're afraid of failure is the more successful you get, the more afraid you are to try new things because now you've got more to risk, right? Now I've got a reputation. I'm supposed to have all the answers. I'm not supposed to screw up. I'm not supposed to look stupid um, because I'm this successful entrepreneur or business person. But if you, that's a recipe for plateauing or even declining. If you want to keep growing, you've got to take new risk. You've got to try new things. And sometimes that's going to result in a screw up. You got to yeah. be okay with that. Right. That's super powerful because I feel like a lot of people do reach those plateaus in their life. Yeah. Almost everybody does. Almost everybody. And I mean, I have to fight against that because I, I can be pretty comfortable. Like Sometimes our know? ego gets in the way right? because we've accomplished success and because other people view us as successful. And if we fall back down into the masses again, wow, what am I going to do? So I can't take this risk because of what where I might fall yeah. to. I was thinking recently, I read a book about artificial intelligence, and it was interesting how machine learning works. And I won't get too far in the weeds here, but in short, machine learning tries a bunch, it simulates a million different ways of doing something and it figures out which one works. So if you're trying to teach a computer how to play chess, basically the computer just plays millions of games and it says, oh, when I do this, I win. And when I do this, I don't win. And it, and it, it quote unquote loses lots of games, but eventually it masters the game. Yeah. The problem is with people is that the first or second time we lose, we're like, oh, that, never mind. I don't good. want that. I don't feel good. And we don't have enough reps to actually win and figure it out. I think that way about starting businesses, like most people, if they start a business at all, they start one or maybe two. But man, how many things are you good at the first time you do it? So right. I figured out, you know, I started my first business as a teenager and I want to I want to start and and not not start and like fail, but start and sell dozens or hundreds of businesses over the course of my lifetime, because I think number 100 is going to be a whole lot better than number 50 and 50 is going to be a lot better than number 10 and so on, uh, because you get better with practice. So, sure. Yeah. So maybe this goes hand in hand with that. If you had one piece of advice to hand off mm -hmm. to the, to the listeners, what is Tim's secret to mm. success? I think, I think there are lots of things that I could come up with 
but put me on the spot for number one, I think I would say prepare for opportunity before you have it. So, so often people wait until they have an opportunity and, and then they're like, oh, now, okay, now I'm going to start preparing for that. And by the time they're done preparing, the opportunity is gone. So I would say the kinds of preparation that you can do, right? You can save money, set aside money, because usually, not always, but usually opportunity requires some kind of investment. Right. So if you, if you want to buy, I don't know, let's just say you want to get into real estate, right? You're going to buy a duplex. Well, you're going to have to have some money to put down on that, even if you borrow most of it. And if you wait until you find the duplex to start borrowing money, it's not going to work. That's kind of obvious. Right. But there are other ways, saving money, building up your credit score, because maybe you're going to have to borrow to do this. Building relationships with people where you invite them to lunch, and by the way, you buy their lunch and buy their coffee and and create goodwill and ask them for advice, ask them about their career and what you have no idea how you're going to use that advice that you get. You don't know if you're ever going to need that friendship or relationship, but you're investing in the future. You're preparing for opportunity, and someday an opportunity is going to come up, and oh, guess what? That guy you had lunch with six months ago is the exact person you need to help you take advantage of this opportunity, but you can't wait until six months later to call him and try to get on his schedule, right? So you're investing in relationships. You're acquiring knowledge. You're getting better. You join Toastmasters and become better at public speaking. Even though public speaking has nothing to do with your current job, you know that lots of successful people speak well. So go invest in Toastmasters. Go invest in your ability to get better at writing. Build some capabilities, even when you're not sure how you're going to use them, and then when opportunity shows up, you're ready to seize it. So I think that would be my number one piece is prepare for opportunity before you have it. And I like how I think I've heard the definition of luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. People go through life saying, man, that guy's lucky. Well, he was prepared. Yeah. Right? yeah. Or he was an overnight success 20 years in the making, right? right? It looks like an overnight success, but he's been working quietly for 20 years to, to be in a position working to achieve that success. Off. Yeah. And then that, that opportunity came. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. So we, we mentioned earlier about how success is not always an uphill journey. It's sometimes a windy road. Sometimes you're going down in the valley. Would you share with our listeners one of the challenges that you've, that you've come across throughout your journey and how you overcame it? Hmm. One of the challenges. It's more fun to talk about successes than challenges. Yeah. Sure <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Lots of challenges. I mean, I remember early on, when I, I can still tell you about every single person that's ever quit, right? Or like the, the work for me that resigned or took a different position or whatever. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a little bit easier now. It's happened, you know, I've been in business for 25 or 30 years. Certainly yeah. it's happened a few times at this point. But I think early on, I can remember a, a really key person that that resigned and took a different position, got a huge pay raise. Like, yeah. I, I don't blame him for a minute. It was... Yeah good for him, good for his family. But I remember agonizing because it felt like number one, I'd failed him. Like I hadn't given him a good opportunity to grow and thrive and succeed. Number two, I was not at all sure how I was like, this was a critical role and how am I going to recover and how am I going to replace him when I don't have the budget to get who I really want and all of that, all kinds of challenges. And what business owner hasn't there too, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think figuring out how to get, Number one, how to do a better job of retaining people. So that was one takeaway from that. Uh, number two was 
how to document things better and systematize so that you aren't so the whole process dependent. is in that one guy's head. Um, yeah, exactly. Number three, how to get better at recruiting so that I can fill that position quickly and and have some certainty that okay, I, I don't have to panic because in the next two weeks I I know that I can or next three or four weeks I can probably find somebody to replace that person. I don't know that that some of the most poignant memories I have are from early on when yeah. a really key person would resign and it it didn't happen often. It wasn't like I had a turnover problem, but it certainly had happened and it was almost always over money and it was always really super disruptive. And, um, so how do you, you said that you learned how to retain people better. What are a couple of tips you've learned? I think that retention is, is involves a whole bunch of stuff. One is people have to have to feel like they're part of an organization that's going somewhere. So there has to be a vision that is bigger than any one person. And that vision has to be made clear so that it's not just in the owner's head, but everybody knows that, okay, we're sailing toward that island and here's my role to play to help get there. Um, There has to be a sense of engagement, like what my work is, like my work matters and it's valuable, not just for making a paycheck, but it's valuable. I'm actually making a difference to people. And then there has to be the the cultural component of like, this is a, a positive fun, enjoyable place to work with right. good people and good teamwork and good communication. And I actually want to come to work because I'm I'm working in my areas of strength and not in my areas of weakness. And my boss is giving me opportunities to learn and sometimes fail. And I don't get chewed out every time I fail, but I get applauded for trying something. So there's, there's sort of creating a culture of safety and uh, positivity. There's helping people grow, not just with promotions and pay raises, though that's some of it, but also developing their skills and their leadership and giving them opportunity. Uh, And then having that shared sense of purpose that leads to employee engagement. Those are some of the obvious things. I think developing people, investing in them as people and professionals, all that is part of it. That that goes hand in hand with even recruiting too. Yeah, because because you can sell a lot of those things. Like here's how we invest in our people. Here are opportunities for, to develop your leadership skills. Here's how, and frankly, nowadays they're probably going to find on social media, other people that work for you. And they're going to ask, they're going to say, what's it like to work at that company? So you got to have your, you know, your walk that matches your talk. Right, right. Your billboard can look all great, but as soon as they talk to the first person that works at your company, they're going to tell them the truth. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and that's something I recommend for people as they're is they're going to join a company that don't just talk to the the empl- person interviewing you. That's right. Or the CEO. Anybody can tell out. a good story. Yeah, even yeah. if even if they're not uh, a super close connection, you can shoot somebody a LinkedIn or a Facebook message and say, "Hey, what do you think about working there?" Right. And right. they'll probably give you the truth. Yep. Right, because they're probably out there putting out uh, applications at other places, ready to flee that ship. Maybe. Yep. Yep. And conversely, like if you're in the hiring position you want to reach out to references and find out because anybody can tell a story in either direction, right? Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. References are important. Yeah, it's so it's so funny how many people hire without reaching out to references. Yeah. 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 It's astonishing. I don't know why it's like, it's not that hard to pick up a phone and make a phone call yeah. and just say, would you hire this person again? You know? Yeah. It comes down to a little bit of laziness, I guess. So I listened to one of your recent podcasts about leadership and you seem very, very passionate about building leaders. Yeah. Why is that? I think leadership, so there are a lot of different philosophies around how to grow a company and even even motivate, not just philosophies, but motivations. But for me, I've never wanted it to be like Tim Joyner and Associates. I don't want to be the genius with a thousand helpers. I love to 
to coordinate, maybe even quarterback a team of experts, but I want people that are smarter and better and more talented and capable than, than I am that are doing all their areas of expertise. I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. And I also don't want to have responsibility for everybody. Okay, you do this, you do that, you do this other thing, because I can never take a vacation. I can never really enjoy the success that I'm trying to build, right? So I think in order to have a thriving company where it isn't wholly dependent on me, I've got to have people who exercise leadership at all levels of the organization. Even at the lowest level of the organization, the person that sits at the front desk has to exercise some degree of self-leadership. And so I want to make sure that I create an environment where leadership is expected and rewarded. Right. And if I assemble a team of people that, that develop their leadership, then it's not all about me and I can actually take a six week vacation to Europe and, you know, the trains still run on time. And that, that's a, you know, that, that's sort of the self-serving part, but I also want to invest like, I think people are more fulfilled and they're happier. They're more satisfied if they actually have opportunities to grow and growth usually means increasing levels of responsibility and leadership. So, so yeah, I'm pretty motivated to make sure that all my people either, whether in title or practice, either one, they're increasingly exercising leadership. I think that most people want to have ownership or control of what they're doing anyway. Yeah. They feel most satisfied, like you said, when they feel like they do own that role. Even if they're just the receptionist, they own that role. That's right. Yeah. Most people don't want to be just a cog in a machine, right? Right. Right. So empowering them. And you mentioned on that podcast, even if they make a mistake, well, hey, you know what? You took risks and made mistakes. If they went out on their, if they went out and and took a risk, you need to reward them for that. Right. Sure. Maybe you correct it. Maybe you help them learn the lesson. Yep. But rewarding it instead of punishing them for something that you made a lot of mistakes on your, on your journey too. Yeah. I tell everybody that works for me, I want to create a bias for decision-making at the lowest level of the organization possible. I never want to be a bottleneck where like, oh, we're waiting on Tim to make that decision. Like I want to push the decision to the lowest level possible because that's where the most information is. Like the front lines actually know what the customers are saying and what they care about and what they're frustrated about and what the opportunities are. So I want those decisions to be at the lowest level possible. And I tell people all the time, I want you to to evaluate every decision against three criteria. Number one, do you have enough information to make this decision? So if you're making a big decision and you've only considered one option and it's going to cost you $20,000 and no, you don't have enough information, right? Right. Um, Now, if it's a $5 decision, you probably just make the decision. Right. Right. Okay. But do you have enough information? Number one. Um, Number two is, is the risk acceptably low? So again, we can put it in a dollar amount, right? Depending on your level of seniority in the organization, a $5,000 decision is different than a $500 decision or whatever. So is the risk acceptably low? If I'm signing a 12-month contract, that's different than a month-to-month contract or whatever. Number three is, do I feel reasonably confident about this decision? If the answer to all of those is true, right, I um, I have enough information, risk is low, and I feel reasonably confident, then make the decision at the lowest level. And here's my promise to you. I will never chastise you or get you in trouble for making the decision, even if it's a bad decision. Right. We'll talk about how to make a better decision next time, but I'm going to applaud you for making the decision, even though it turned out to be costly or, you know, it was a screw up. I'm still going to reward you for making the decision. And then we'll talk about how to make a better decision. And, and that I think is one of the easiest ways I've encouraged people to make decisions and take on increasing levels of leadership is just by giving them that permission and not just permission, but like impetus, like do this mandate. I feel like a lot of leaders or CEOs of organizations 
thrive on control. Right. They want to control everything that's going on. Whereas the leadership you're talking about, control isn't necessarily what you're chasing. It's yeah. freedom that you're chasing. Yeah. Yeah. I want to empower other people to make good decisions. I want to teach them how to make good decisions and take responsibility. Um, I, I want to delegate outcomes, not activities. Mm. So I don't want to say, okay, Johnny, do this. Okay, Sue, do that. Okay, Bob, do this. Um, I want to say, here's the outcome that I want. Go exercise your unique ability, your skills, your, your creativity, mm-hmm. your networks, your knowledge, figure out the best way to get to that outcome that we want and and go have fun doing it, yeah. right? And then report back when we get to that outcome. Right. As opposed to do this task, do this activity, do that. Because I, then I've got to follow up on them and I've got to do all the heavy lifting and the thinking and figure out how to solve all these problems. Like if I wanted to do all that, I'd just be self-employed and be a one-man show. Like, right. you know? So yeah, I think that's a good way of saying it. I'm I'm more interested in freedom and empowering other people than I am in control or micromanagement. Yeah. And we spoke earlier about the issues with success nowadays because there's so much fake success on social media. Right. And you mentioned, I love the phrase that there's an inverse relationship between skill and wisdom. Yeah. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah. I've just noticed that there are a lot of gray hairs out there, literally or metaphorically, that have a lot of wisdom. They've got life experience. They've actually done really impressive things. Mm -hmm. But they tend, as a rule, to not have a lot of facility with social media, right? And so they don't tell, they're not very good at telling their stories. Right. Meanwhile, you have 18 year olds that have no wisdom (laughs) that are actually saying some really stupid things, Mm. but they've got a follower, a a followership of a million people because they've figured out the skill of amplifying their own brand through TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and whatever. And so often there's an inverse relationship between the skill of self-promotion or, or not even self-promotion, but like delivering a message at scale. Mm-hmm. Inverse relationship between that skill and actual wisdom that's worth sharing. Right. Which I think is really unfortunate because you've got all these people that are spouting some kind of foolish things yeah. and and they've got all this influence that's not actually worth very much. And meanwhile, there's all this wisdom that's locked up. So that's one of the reasons why uh, my friend Jeremiah Dew and I, with whom we we uh, recorded a different podcast called Grow With Tim, um, we started a company called Impact Avalanche that basically helps unlock all that wisdom. So for high-octane entrepreneurs and thought leaders, we put them in a studio for 90 minutes a week. We draw out that wisdom, and then our team in the Philippines edits it and captions it and produces it and syndicates it across all these platforms. So it's a done-for-you service to get that valuable wisdom, that message, whatever it is that you have to get out there, we sort of take and do the heavy lifting, hopefully writing that inverse relationship. Right. It's one of the reasons I was very excited about connecting with you because it's the whole reason I started this podcast because I saw so much out there. And I know that there are 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds that are looking to social media, wanting good advice, and they're getting horrible advice. Right. Uh, one of the things that I recommend as far as people combating that, how do, how do we fight against that is if someone's successful in an area, take their advice in that area. Right? Yes. So if they're, if they've got a hundred thousand or a million followers on LinkedIn or on Facebook or on TikTok, take their advice on how to grow to a million followers. Right. But don't take their advice on how to eat healthy yeah, right. or relationship advice. Right. 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 Exactly. So uh, what, are, what are the thoughts? How, how else do we combat that? I don't know. I, I mean, there are a lot of people who are not really interested in building a personal brand and that's fine. I respect that. They're like, look, I'm happy. I've achieved a level of success. I don't, 
I don't necessarily need a lot of influence. Yeah. And that's fine. Um, I think that social media and particularly video, social video it is an, I mean, in the history of humanity, we've never had such an opportunity to influence so many people for good so easily, right? If you wanted access to a million people, you had to take out a multi-million dollar Super Bowl ad, right? In, in order to reach that kind of people. And now you can set up a camera in your garage and over time with some hard work and some diligent effort and creativity, like you can reach a million people. Yeah. And that's amazing. And so there's a great opportunity, but also a responsibility, I think, to actually have something worth sharing. So what a lot of people have not figured out, the, the, the gray hairs among us have not figured out is how they can not only do good, impact a lot of people, but also benefit financially or in other ways, right? Because you you get all this name recognition and this this brand recognition, you've got a much larger platform, not just to influence people, but to sell whatever product or service you have, right? right? Whether that's consulting or whether that's financial services or whether that's gutter cleaning, it doesn't matter. Like if you're reaching right. a million people, a very small percentage of those people have to write checks in order for you to be really, you know, fabul- fabulously successful. Right. And that's a great segue into this uh, this question. You are involved in so many different companies right now. You've got I'm, a lot I'm of a little ADHD, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> but that's great. That's that's how I feel like a lot of successful people they've always got multiple streams of income. Yeah. What are you most focused on, though? Oh boy, that's a hard question. I don't know if there is a most. So uh, I'll tell you in terms of time. The biggest thing that's consuming my time and attention right now is a software company. We make software for the thrift industry. And so uh, I run operations for them, and that probably consumes, depending on the week, you know, maybe as much as uh, half of my time. Wow. So that's probably the single biggest thing. Uh, but I've got a men's shoe company uh, with a partner. So we manufacture shoes in Brazil, we import them to the States and sell them online. Uh, that takes up some of my time. I've got a coaching consulting business called Krishita Strategy Group. I consult mainly with people in the marketing space, people that want to grow their businesses. Sometimes they're actually in a marketing leadership role like a CMO. Sometimes they're an entrepreneur or business owner. And I help them leverage their marketing and advertising to not as an agency would, right? I don't actually do the execution, but I'll coach and consult and help them think differently about their messaging and their channel selection and so on. Yeah. Um, so I do some coaching and consulting. I've got a couple of real estate ventures, mainly in the single family, some multifamily residential real estate business. So yeah. I'm a landlord. And then I've got this impact avalanche that I told you about that I've just started recently where I'm helping entrepreneurs deliver a message at scale. Yeah. There are a couple of other little pieces here and there, but those are kind of the big ones that take so most when, of my time. So when it comes to not, not from a time perspective, but what are, what's Tim most excited about? Like what takes up your mental space? What are you yeah. mentally thinking about a lot? I'm, honestly, I'm excited about all of them for different reasons. The real estate business is mostly on autopilot. So I've sure. got property managers that do the day-to-day management of all that stuff. And that's a portfolio that I've been building for close to 20 years. And it it I'm growing it every year, but it pretty much takes care of itself and just throws off a really nice passive income stream. So that doesn't, it's not, it's very valuable to me, but it's not super exciting. I'm not passionate about it, right? right? Um, the coaching and consulting is really fun. It's very lucrative. I can create a lot of value in a small amount of time and I enjoy that, but it's not something that I am, you know, aggressively trying to grow. 
I think the software company represents tremendous financial opportunity because we saw, I mean, I just love software in general, any kind of software, because the marginal cost of delivery, right? If you do it right, the marginal cost of delivering another copy of the software is very low, but the value it creates is very high. And so at a certain point you hit scale and you grow that thing like a hockey stick. So that's super fun to think about the the possibility to influence companies and and do good that software is for nonprofits and we're making an impact on the world so that's really good some financial upside there as well but i think the thing that is most exciting to me right now probably because it's new is this impact avalanche that i spoke of earlier because in that business i get to meet all these really high octane super successful people that yeah. have wisdom to share and i get like a front row seat and hearing that and helping then amplify that message. And so I'm meeting a lot of interesting people and learning a lot of cool things. So that's, where are you, that's where are you putting out this? Is it on podcasts or is it websites or how are you putting so, out this info? Yeah, so it is, like I said, it's brand new. Um, so we're kind of making up the playbook as we go okay, along. Okay, But so, so we couldn't find it. If somebody searched today, they couldn't You're find not going to find anything on Impact Avalanche. Well, I don't know. It depends on how long it takes you to produce this podcast. It might yeah. be up by the, there will be a website, but there's not one yet okay. uh, as of this recording date. Um, but it'll be impactavalanche.com once once it's up. Okay. And um, right now it's basically, I would say by invitation only, like to people that know me and know what I've been up to the past 10 months or so, and they're like, man, I want to do that. Can you help me? Yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of be my guinea pig. And so yeah. we're just, just getting going. But yes, we're producing podcasts. We're producing shorts on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok and Facebook. And we've seen a lot of success. We've yeah. got channels that uh, have really blown up you know, we're recording today in one of our studios that we're doing that with. Yeah. And right next door, we've got somebody that uh, has a channel with, I don't know, 120,000 followers or something like that. And they're growing their business, um, double or even triple digit annual growth entirely on the back of social media. Like wow. there is no sales and marketing effort outside of viral video. Yeah. And um, so, so it's, I'm learning a lot of stuff and that's probably the most interesting thing. But if, if that's something that one of your listeners is interested in, uh, email me, Tim at timjoiner.com or go to uh, timjoiner.com. You can find links to all my social stuff and right. you can reach out to me, schedule a meeting. But uh, so far, I don't have any collateral for that business. Okay. One of the, one of your companies that really intrigued me is Polished. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about, first of all, what do you guys do? And then second, how did that come to be? It seems like it's, of all the different companies, it didn't seem like it, it doesn't is. fit the mold, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Polished. So Polished is the men's shoe business and manufacturing shoes in Brazil. So uh, how that came about is I became friends with a guy from Brazil. He owned a string of shoe stores, a, ch- a chain of shoe stores in Brazil, and he brought his family to America to give him a better life. Uh, ended up joining the church um, where I worship, and we became friends. We did some real estate deals together. This was back when I was in the agency business, and I was actually in the process of selling several agencies. Uh, it was pretty much a self-managing company. And so I had those leaders we talked about earlier that were in place doing great work and running, you know, the trains were running on time without me. Yeah. And to be honest, I was a little bored. Yeah. Here's this other guy, Nico, who's from Brazil. He's got his shoe stores on autopilot in Brazil. They're running themselves. He's kind of bored. Too bored entrepreneurs, probably not a good, you know, easy to get in trouble, right? And so we said, we should do something together. Yeah, right. We should do something together. And, And I had all of the marketing and branding expertise that he needed he had all the international business and manufacturing connections and, and expertise that I needed because I yeah. didn't know anything about international business, didn't know anything about manufacturing or shoes. Mm-hmm. And we said, look, we, we got all the right skills. Let's let's uh, let's start a company. So we built this brand from nothing. 
we uh, went down and toured a bunch of shoe factories and met with designers. And we ended up designing a line of about 30 shoes in that first trip and contracted the manufacturing in Brazil and then learned about the import export process and, and spun up a brand and started selling them online. And that was uh, a year and a half ago, I guess. The store has actually been open for just over a year online. It's at polished.shoes. And um, it's, it's been a super fun ride. I, when we started it, I said, look, I don't know anything about half of this business. So I'm going to have to learn, but I'm interested in learning all these things. And I could go back and get a second MBA and spend a lot of money on it. I could probably spend the same or less money on actually doing it, have a lot more fun and maybe have something to show for it at the end. Yeah. Plus I get a tax, dedu- tax deductible trip to Brazil a couple times a year. So that seemed like a good plan. So that's how it got started. Now, what kind of shoes do you guys sell? So they are all men's shoes and they're, they're, uh, most of them fall into the category we call modern classics. Okay. So it's a, a traditional leather upper, maybe a brogue or a wingtip or an Oxford leather. or something. Yeah, it, it would be all, it would be like a, a real leather shoe, sheepskin lining, like really nice shoe. But then we'll pair it with, say, a sneaker sole mm-hmm. or we'll put a red stripe through it or we'll put a little accent piece of blue leather on the back or something okay. to modernize it, make it a little bit more interesting. Okay. So it's a really comfortable quality shoe, well-made, in many cases, handmade in Brazil. So not like sweatshop labor and not yeah. a bunch of synthetic materials, but it's it's not like your grandfather's shoe that looks boring, mm-hmm. but it's also not a sneaker. It's a really well-made, comfortable, classy looking shoe that just has a touch of like flair. A Cole Haan or an Echo? Yeah, Cole Haan and Echo would both be very close competitors in terms of the style and the comfort and the quality level. I would say... Cole Haan is probably a little bit more trendy. Um, we'd have a little bit more quality, but gotcha. but yeah, you're in the right ballpark. Okay, nice, very cool. So one last question. Yeah, can you explain for our audience what a fractional executive is? <laughs> fractional executive, yeah. So let's say you've got a company that is big enough that you need expertise, you need leadership, you need experience. In a, in a given area. So the, the most popular fractional executive role would be a fractional CFO, chief financial officer. You need the kind of cash management and forecasting and accounting oversight and strategic decision-making that a CFO can give you. And you need that strategic insight, but you don't need that person in a seat 50 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And, and you probably can't afford them because you know, you've know you got a company of 30 or 40 or 50 people and you, you don't need a full-time CFO, but you need that level of expertise. So you hire a fractional CFO and that fractional CFO comes in and spends maybe an hour a day or two days a week or whatever, depending on your needs. And they charge you less than a full-time, you know, a full-time CFO would, but you get all of their expertise and wisdom, but not all of their time. Right. And then that person does that same role for five or six different people and everybody wins. And so for me, that's been a really fun thing. I've, I've had roles as fractional CFO, CMO, COO for several different companies, and I can come in and leverage experience and leadership in a relatively short amount of time, create a lot of value, help them with hiring and firing and staffing and process management, all that kind of stuff, but not be glued to a seat in their office for 50, uh, 50 hours. And, and it's good for everybody. That shows a lot to your uh, flexibility or your, your adaptability or your growth and your education that you can CMO, CFO, COO. I mean, some, some people take their whole life to figure out how to just be a CFO. Yeah. And to be fair, the, to all the, the real CFOs out there, they're, they're probably a lot more sophisticated and talented in many cases than I am. But I've got an MBA and I've got a background in finance and I've, I've 
been there, done that in my own companies enough that I can be pretty valuable in that kind of role. It doesn't mean that, you know, I could come into a fortune 100 company and be their CFO, sure. but I can absolutely create value for mo- the kinds of companies that I work with. Um, yeah, at several different levels. Well, it proves just your background and experience because you've been there and done that with all your companies. Right. You had to be the CMO. You had to be the at CFO one point I had to play all the, where all, all of those companies. That's right. And that's great because most com- most CEOs of because uh, I do a lot of fractional work too, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a CRO or a CMO yeah. work. Yeah. Uh, mainly within the tech industry yeah. because that tech guy started his company because he's really good at tech. Yes, exactly. But he doesn't necessarily he and he grows his company because he has a good reputation. He does yeah, good. He work. does good work, right? And maybe he he can even hire a few people and grow his company to twenty or thirty employees. Right. But eventually, he hits a he ceiling. Hits a ceiling. That's right. Because he doesn't. Then he needs know. you to come in and help him get through that ceiling. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that's really cool that that me and you share a lot of uh, commonalities yeah. in a lot of these different things, Tim. Yeah, I love it, and I I honestly call it my ADHDness or whatever, but like actually doing one role for one company full time, I just get so bored. <laughs> I don't think I can do it. Right. There's um, advantages to ADHD, I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. But I, I really love that fractional thing. I don't, I can't do, you know, very many roles at once because I've got too many other things going on, but I, I love coming in and creating value at scale in a few hours a week. It's a lot of fun. So you're not a fractional CIO though. I've never done that. No, no, I've never <laughs> done that. Me neither. And most of the companies that I work for are tech companies anyway. They don't need me in that role. Right, right. But, uh, okay, final thoughts. Yeah. What are your favorite books? Oh, man, favorite books. So many. Probably uh, Good to Great It always comes to mind. I've benefited a lot from that. The level five leader, the getting the right people on the bus and then figuring out what seat to put them in. Some of those concepts from that have been really valuable. Very dry and statistical book. So if yeah. you like that kind of book, if you're if you're not looking for the hype and motivation, yeah, because he doesn't really have much of that in there. No, but there's a lot of data, a lot of so research, much. hard so hitting research. If you like research. data, great yeah, book for you. That's right. So if, if you want something that is more you know, story driven, driven, that's, that's a lot easier to read. Uh, five dysfunctions of a team, I think is helpful. Mm-hmm. You get a, some insight into how a, a company's executive team ought to work. I think yeah. that's uh, Pat Lencioni's book is pretty good. Death by meeting is another in that same category. Okay. Um, in operations, you think of this as a manufacturing book, but actually it has application in almost any business would be, um, this book, Theory of Constraints, um, is the subtitle, and it's all—it's about a manufacturing plant that that um, is not very efficient, and they're always behind, and they're always not hitting their targets, and their customers are frustrated with them, and whatever. And it's about the transformation of this plant, and it's so good. I'm sure I'll come up with it as soon as we end this podcast. But anyway, that's one. Recently, a book that I've read that has been really thought provoking. Um, maybe more so than just about any book I've read, at least recently, is The Price of Tomorrow. Hmm. The Price of Tomorrow is ostensibly about inflation. And it was written before our current inflationary, you know, off the charts kind of crazy period. But it's written within the last, last couple of years. But the guy who wrote it must have been like a polymath or something because he talks intelligently about artificial intelligence, about game theory, about persuasion, about inflation, about economic theory, all kinds of stuff that he weaves into this book. And his argument is that in the eventual future, we're not going to experience inflation. We're going to experience significant deflation. Hmm. And the reason is because everything is getting infused with technology. So our whole economic world order is currently built on the idea, the expectation that prices go up. Our whole lot, our houses go up, land goes up, Mm -hmm. 
melt goes up, everything goes up, right? But what always goes down is technology. Technology keeps getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because we have more automation and more. So everything, your refrigerator, your transportation, everything is getting infused with technology. And so he's saying in the world of tomorrow, we're actually going to have falling prices and real estate is going to get cheaper because it doesn't matter where you live when you have autonomous vehicles and video conferencing and holographic video conferencing and all this. Like it doesn't matter where you are. So prices have to fall mm. and transportation will fall and commodities will fall. Everything will go down and you've got to be ready for that. And if you are ready for that, you'll have incredible economic opportunity because you saw around the corner before the next guy did. Wow. Really thought provoking book. Uh, one last one I'll throw out is the, the power of full engagement talks about managing not just time, but managing your energy and your focus, your motivation. Been really helpful for me to get more peak productivity out of myself is the power of full engagement. Lots and lots of books I could talk about, but those are four that come to mind right away. Well, Tim, I appreciate it. You Listeners, you can find them at timjoiner.com. Tim, this has been a pleasure, been a blessing. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. All right, listeners, let's get out there and make our world, our country, and our community a better place. When you succeed, we all succeed. And as always, this is a friendly reminder that the left lane is for passing. So speed up or move over.